I want to paint a picture for you for just a moment. See if it resonates. A new disease suddenly appears. It starts seemingly far off, but it is now here. Borders close, and people are sequestered to their homes. Living under lockdown, we turn on our TVs only to be besieged by a daily breakdown of a sudden, sickening surging, first of our infirmaries, and then our mortuaries and cemeteries. Since folks cannot go to work, businesses teeter as overheads pile up, and revenues are either non-existent or woefully insufficient. Suddenly, it requires an uncomfortable mask even to do the most essential of tasks. Familiar rhythms of work and worship and fellowship are supplanted by frequent walks to quell the boredom. The kitchen table becomes the family office, and it would seem only the family dog likes this new arrangement. Medical desperation, physical isolation, economic deterioration, and the sudden implementation of significant regulations evokes hesitation in some, indignation in others, and frustration in us all. And many wonder, God, why are you not doing something? Then, just as light begins to appear at the end of this tunnel, just as things begin to reopen and we're about to wrap our minds around a rebound, someone who's supposed to be our protector commits murder. And it's done in broad daylight, and we can hardly believe we're witnessing it. Universal disgust initially unites us in indignation, and it seems to be poised to move us towards unified action. But that moment is suddenly somehow hijacked by those who have alternative intentions. And sadly, instead of peaceful marching leading to productive changing, the situation gives way to rioting and looting. Instead of normalcy returning, we see businesses burning, and we're left asking, God, why are you not doing something? If that's a question on your heart today, you are in good company. It is a question that comes up from time to time among the people of God living in a world broken by sin and ravaged by sinners. And so, for the next three Sundays, we are going to be in what the Hebrews called the Book of the Twelve. The Twelve were so designated because these small books were written together on one single scroll. These brief books are what Christians tend to call the minor prophets. They're not minor in content, nor lesser in importance. Rather, Christians call them minor because they're shorter than what we call the major prophets, who have been given lengthier oracles from the Almighty to share with us. Now, how much shorter are the minor prophets? Well, all 67 chapters of the minor prophets taken together are only one slender chapter shorter than just the major prophet, Isaiah, for example. 
So for these next three Sundays, I want us to zero in on just one of these 12 minor prophets. It is a book that we often misspell. It is a book that we often misplace. And so it is a book that we sadly often miss out on its incredibly powerful and I believe very timely message for us today. The book is Habakkuk. Habakkuk. And you can find its three-chapter message tucked between the books of Nahum and Zephaniah in the Old Testament. It is the fifth from the last of the Old Testament books canonologically, that is, in the order of the Bible, though its message happens much earlier in chronology. You see, in Hebrew history, Habakkuk was a contemporary of both Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And like both of them, Habakkuk shares a similar message of a coming Chaldean invasion upon the Hebrew nation. But in many ways, Habakkuk is an unusual book. We, we just don't see many books like Habakkuk in the Bible. You see, most of the prophets will start, for instance, with a byline so we can better understand where they're coming from. Sometimes the byline is in the form of a timeline, helping us pinpoint that prophecy in a specific moment in history. And that is the case in Haggai 1.1, where the Bible says, in the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by the hand of Haggai, the prophet. Now, sometimes the, the, the byline is in the, in the form of a genealogy, helping us understand the background of the prophet. And this is the case in Zephaniah 1.1. The word of the Lord came to Zephaniah, the son of Cushi, the son of Gildiah, the son of Amariah, the son of Hezekiah. What does that tell us? Well, that byline reveals to us that Zephaniah the prophet is a descendant of the godly king Hezekiah, who led one of the very last of Israel's revivals before God's people were taken into exile. Now, sometimes the byline is telling us a bit about the prophet's geography, helping us place the prophet in a specific place within the world. We see this in places like Nahum 1.1, which says an oracle concerning Nineveh, the vision of Nahum of Elkosh. He's from the village of Elkosh. Now, sometimes the byline is in the form of what the prophet used to do, his former vocation, such as Amos, where we're told he was an agrarian. He was specifically a fig farmer and a shepherd. And sometimes the byline includes multiple elements, as in the case of Ezekiel, which says in chapter 1, in the 13th year of the fourth month of the fifth day of the month, I was among the exiles by the Sheber Canal, and the heavens were opened, and I saw the vision of God. And on the fifth day of the month, it was the fifth year of the exile of King Jehoiachin. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel the priest, the son of Buzi, in the land of the Chaldeans, by the Chaber Canal, and the hand of the Lord was upon him there. However, our book is unlike all of those books. Obadiah, Micah, and Habakkuk are unique in that all that we are given is the prophet's name. 
Our book begins with the oracle that Habakkuk, the prophet, saw. So what does the name Habakkuk tell us? Well, that too is enigmatic. His name is thought to derive from the Hebrew word Habak. Habak means embrace or embracer. It literally means to, to fold one's hands. And the great reformer Martin Luther took Habak to uh, be in the active sense and he saw Habakkuk as a prophet who embraced his people to, to comfort them and to uphold them in times of uncertainty. But the great church father Jerome, writing much earlier, he's the man who translated the Bible into Latin, he took Habakkuk in the passive sense. And so Jerome proposed that Habakkuk was a prophet who was being embraced by the problem of divine justice in a wicked world. And there are some modern scholars who go even farther, and they believe that Habakkuk comes from the word Habakkuk, which is a word found in the related Semitic language of Akkadian. And if that is true, the Akkadian word Habakkuk denotes a species of garden plant or a fruit tree. And these scholars go on to contend that Habakkuk's name, therefore, argues for some kind of significant foreign influence among the people of God uh, at this time. Perhaps even so much so that some of these scholars will try to say that perhaps Habakkuk was of a mixed lineage of Israelite and Assyrian marriage. But that seems quite a stretch. That seems pretty far from anything we can actually defend from the text. So what we do know is that the book of Habakkuk is unusual among the prophets in its contents. Very different kind of book. Uh, on a literary level, how the prophecy is structured is, is unique. It reads more like a story than a standard prophecy. In this way, it's, it's similar perhaps only to the book of Jonah, who's a prophet and yet it's told in a story form. Uh, Jonah gives the account of a prophet's initial failure to sympathize with God's sentiments in extending grace to even the debased. Jonah doesn't want grace to go to the wicked Ninevites, and so he's a reluctant prophet. And, and, and Habakkuk is also a story, and, and it gives the account of a prophet's initial failure to understand the work of God in this world. Habakkuk, in fact, opens up with the question, is God even at work anymore in this world? And in regards to the time of the prophecy, Habakkuk is again unusual. And again, he's in keeping with the book of Jonah in this respect. You see, whereas most of all the other prophetic books, major or minor, they, they tend to record a series of messages of a prophet over an extended period of time, usually many years. Isaiah records many years. Many of the prophecies have oracles over many, many years. But Habakkuk, the whole book revolves around one single event, in the life of the prophet, just as the story of Jonah compacts really one story over a relatively short period of the prophet's life. In addition to the structure being unusual, the style is really unusual. Other prophets 
almost universally will they typically declare God's message to the people. And this prophet is speaking of a dialogue (laughs) with God about the people. Very different. Most prophets proclaimed judgment, divine judgment. Habakkuk pleads for divine judgment. One scholar summed up Habakkuk like this, quote, This little book records an intriguing interchange between a perplexed prophet and his maker, end quote. Habakkuk was essentially confused around two major questions, two conundrums. The first is this, how come God is not doing something despite his people so blatantly breaking his holy law? And when God answers that question, it leads to a new question. Number two, how can God use a more wicked people to be the instrument of justice on his people? Habakkuk's questions still resonate today, don't they? Don't we too often observe there is too much wickedness among the righteous and too much power among the wicked? I love Scripture. I love that God's Word does not censure these kind of questions, but dedicates a whole book and portions of others to addressing these kinds of questions. So having laid out all this background for our three Sundays together, let's address our text today in light of Habakkuk's first question. God, why are you not doing something? And so as you turn in in the word of the Lord to the book of Habakkuk, let's first turn to the Lord of that word in prayer and ask him to bless our time today in a book that we probably don't know as well as we should. Let's pray. Father, we invite you as the author of Holy Scripture to make this book come alive. We are not the first generation to not understand our situation, to wonder, are you acting? Are you caring? Are you moving? Do you answer our praying? And then when you answer, the answer confuses us. It confounds us because your thoughts are not our thoughts and you are not like us, O God. I pray that you would whet our appetite this Sunday to devour Habakkuk in the days of uncertainty that come in our life personally, but also corporately and indeed even nationally. There are seasons where the foundations are shaken and we wonder what must the righteous do when those things are true. And I pray, O oh God, that we would, we would have a holy boldness to speak to you forthrightly and clearly as the prophet Habakkuk does, but then the humility to listen to your answer and to accept that you are God and we are not, that the righteous shall live by his faith, as the Bible first says in the book of Habakkuk, but picks up repeatedly in the New Testament. I pray, Lord Jesus, that you would stamp this scripture on our hearts, that it would be upon our lips, when our friends and neighbors and indeed our fellow Christians are looking for answers. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. The Word of God says in Habakkuk, beginning at verse 1 of chapter 1, we're going to do the first 11 verses today. 
the oracle that Habakkuk the prophet saw. O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry out, violence, and you do not save? Why do you make me see iniquity? Why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise, and the law is paralyzed, and and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth crooked, perverted. Now, God answers this prophet's sincere question. Verse 5. The Lord's answer, look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that if I told you, you would not believe it. For behold, I am raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. They are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. That is, they're a law unto themselves. They think much of themselves. Their justice and dignity goes forth, not from truth and righteousness, but from themselves. Verse 8, their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than evening wolves. Their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar, and they fly like an eagle, swift to devour. And they all come for a purpose, and the purpose is violence. And all their faces are forward. They don't retreat. And they gather captives like sand. And at kings they scoff. And at rulers they laugh. And they laugh at every fortress. Then they pile up the earth and they take it. They have a plan in siege warfare to overcome your best defenses. And then they sweep by like the wind and they go on. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Habakkuk asks, God, why do you delay? Do you even listen when I pray? We see this in verse 2. Oh Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or at least so the prophet thinks. Habakkuk asks, God, why are you permitting injustice? Why are you not saving us? Verse 2, O Lord, how long shall I cry to you, violence, and you will not save? You see, in Hebrew history, the, the ten northern tribes had already been taken away by the Assyrians after an unbroken succession of wicked kings who led their people into even greater levels of wickedness. Instead of worshiping biblically at the temple as God had commanded, the the northern tribes, by their first king, they invented a new religion, and they set up rival altars at Dan and Bethel. It was more convenient, and it was easier, and it was an abomination. But but Judah, the people that Habakkuk is speaking of, they're part of the, the two southern tribes that remained that hadn't been taken into captivity. A few of the people of the north uh, had moved to the south, and they were sort of the last of the, quote, righteous remnant. And, and these people were the only people of all of God's people who were still on God's land. The kingdom of Judah still went to temple. They they still held to the forms of the religious ritual. 
But the Bible says the people's hearts and indeed their king's actions were were exceedingly wicked despite all their religiosity. Uh, They might go through the, the, the motions of worship, but their hearts were in strident rebellion. And this was seen by their interactions with one another. They knew how to play the the church game, in their case, the temple game, but but they really lived to overtake their neighbor. Now, you've got to remember, their capital is Jerusalem. This is where the temple is. This is where God had set up Zion, his holy hill. And Jerusalem means city of peace. But they were tearing each other to pieces in Habakkuk's day. Each person was seeking to find some small advantage over his neighbor. They would use force if necessary, but more often than not, they would use sophisticated subtleties so that legal decisions, Habakkuk writes, are unjust and arbitrary. Listen in, starting again at the second part of the second verse. O Lord, how long shall I cry to help and you will not hear? Or cry to you violence, they'll use force if they can, and you will not save. And why do you make me see iniquity? And why do you idly look at wrong? That is, among the people of God, they were in all kinds of iniquity and injustice. Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention arise. And so the law is is paralyzed. That is, God's word doesn't seem to be working in their world. And justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous so that justice goes forth, but it's crooked, it's perverted, it's unjust. Can you relate? Does this situation resonate? Indeed, there is nothing new under the sun. Oh, how we need the counsel of Scripture if this fallen world we shall ever hope to decipher. Oh, how we need to inquire of someone higher. Oh, how we need our wise designer so that we might acquire the wisdom these dark days require. So what is God's answer to the righteous prophet's righteous anger? Uh, What is heaven's answer to the confused believer's confusion? What is the Lord's counsel to those who are wondering, God, why are you not doing something? Now here's the Lord's answer. It starts in verse 5. Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded, for I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if I told you. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans. That's the word for the Babylonians. That bitter and hasty nation who march against the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings not their own. Their dreaded and fearsome, their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards. And he goes on and on until verse 11. They sweep by like the wind. Guilty men whose own might is their God. Habakkuk is seeing God's people not being godly. And God's word not seemingly holding back the wickedness. And he wonders, God, are you there? God, do you care? Do you even hear my prayer? 
And friends, the Word of God tells us God was there. God does care. And God had heard his people's prayer. God was not inactive sitting on the sidelines. He was about to act. And he was about to act in a very surprising way they could have never guessed. You see, God's people needed revival. God's people needed purification. And so God was going to so heat up the refiner's fire until he removed the dross and reminded his people who's the boss. God was going to make a, a sharp sword for the Lord to do heart surgery among the nations. But in order to make a sharp sword for the Lord out of his people, like any good swordsmith, you have to heat and beat the metal until the people of God had some metal and stopped being so busy in their personal iniquity. God was going to act, and he was going to act in such a way that, boy, he got their attention. God was about to send a people who, while themselves were unholy, they were going to serve God's holy purposes to make his people holy again. God was about to unleash the sword of the Chaldeans. For from Babylon, the great gate, a catastrophe will be unleashed, causing God's people to move from arrogance back to God in brokenness and repentance. God says, I'm going to do something you could not conceive even if you pondered upon it. Uh, something you will struggle to believe, even as I disclose it. Listen in again to verse 5, where God says, Look among the nations and see. Wonder and be astounded. For I am doing a work in your days that you would not believe, if told. You see, God is not passive. God is about to be very active. So active that his people will wake up from their stupor and follow God with renewed fervor. You see, God has been working behind the scenes in world history while the Israelites were so busy in their personal iniquities. God had already fired a warning shot when the Assyrians swooped in and took 10 of the 12 tribes of Israel into captivity just 100 years earlier. And now God was going to begin judging those ruthless Assyrians by raising up one of the rivals they had so mercilessly oppressed for so many years. The Assyrians had long lorded it over the Babylonians. And now the Babylonians are going to arise and they're going to usher in the Assyrians' demise. Old powers like the Pharaohs had become a shell of their former glory by the days of Habakkuk. So in 612 B.C., when the Assyrian capital of Nineveh fell and Babylon ascended, seven years later, Pharaoh Necho would send his army all the way out there, and his army would be defeated at what's called the Battle of Carchemish in the river Euphrates vicinity. And so Pharaoh's army would beat feet and retreat from the mess in Mesopotamia all the way to Israel where the Babylonian general Nebuchadnezzar would besiege Jerusalem and begin the domination mentioned in our passage today. Friends, Babylon the Great 
would be permitted a season of treason. But even in that, there was a reason. For what man meant for evil, God was going to use for good. Yes, the Babylonian invaders would be impetuous and merciless. Verse 6, for behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation. The Babylonian invaders would be unstoppable, and their greed would be unquenchable. Verse 6, they shall march through the breadth of the earth and seize dwellings, not their own. They would be terrifying, and they would be self-serving. Verse 7, they are dreaded and fearsome. Their justice and dignity go forth from themselves. They would possess the latest technology and have the most advanced army. Verse 8, their horses are swifter than leopards, more fierce than the evening wolves, and their horsemen press proudly on. Their horsemen come from afar, and they fly like an eagle swift to devour. They would appear utterly unstoppable, and their intentions are clearly hostile. Verse 9, they all come for violence. They don't come for reason. They come for violence. All their faces are forward. There's no retreat or defeat in their mind, and they gather captives like the sand you cannot count. They would fear no foe. At mighty kings, they scoff, and at rulers, they laugh. There would be no defense against their tactics. Verse 10, they laugh at every fortress, for they pile up earth and take it. That is, they build siege ramps and just come right over your walls. Their advance would be swift, and they would never seem to run out of steam. Verse 11, they sweep by like the wind, and they go on. Their arrogance would know no bounds. And they wrongly concluded that they were the apex of all that mattered in this world. They mistook their sovereign permission from Almighty and these victories that they were given nightly, and this made them think that they, they were the ones who were high and mighty in this world. Verse 11, guilty men whose own might is their God. They really thought a lot of themselves. And yet, while great evil was permitted for a season of treason, a greater God will produce a greater good from even this. Years ago, Billy Graham preached on this passage, and I found his words helpful and powerful. And so let me quote him for just a moment. Quote Billy Graham saying this. Habakkuk said, Lord, please, would you tell me what you're doing? And God said, no, I'm not going to tell you, Habakkuk, because if I told you what I was doing, you wouldn't believe it. If God today told us what he was doing in the world, we wouldn't believe it. Don't you think that God has given up, that God has advocated, that God has left the throne? He hasn't, Billy Graham told us. He's still on the throne, and those of us that know him put our trust in him and in him alone. Graham says, I don't put my trust in Washington. I don't put my trust in the United Nations. I don't put my trust in myself. I don't put my trust in my money. I put my trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And when all of the rest fails and crumbles and shatters, he'll be there. Friends, Billy Graham was right. He's right because he echoes the words of David, which were inspired by the Holy Spirit of the living God and then placed in the Holy Scriptures of that God. 3,000 years ago, King David asked in Psalm 11.3, you might write it in your Bible, Psalm 11.3 next to this passage, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? And here is the answer of Scripture. The answer of Scripture is Psalm 11.4. The Lord is in His holy temple. The Lord is on His holy throne. He observes the sons of men. And his eyes examine them, and the Lord examines the righteous. But the wicked and those who love violence, his soul hates. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulfur, and a scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous, he loves justice, and his and upright men will seek his face. Friends, when the world is spinning out of control, when justice seems hemmed in and God's word seems paralyzed, I want you to remember that God is not asleep at the switch. He is seated on his throne. God is moving the gears of history, even in whatever pressing present iniquity we see. God Almighty is building a kingdom that cannot be shaken, though everything in this world will roll up like a scroll. Now, we may not always see it. We may not always understand it. But know this, God is moving in this world today. It reminds me a little bit of the confusion that happened after the September 11th attacks. If you are old enough to remember September 11th, we flicked on our TVs and all we saw was the devastation and destruction and carnage and confusion and, and the nation stopped and then we went to war and multiple war, all of these things. But friends, God was working even in that situation. Today, we have the testimonies of those people who have come to Christ through the trauma and tumult and terrific tragedy that was 9-11. We have the testimonies of those who've been called to ministry. In fact, going and called to minister to some of those people that were trying to kill us, and they went and they shared Christ with those people. If we look throughout history and we look at great tragedy and travesty, we still find God at work somewhere quietly. Many historians, secular historians, will tell us that it was through the horrors of the Holocaust, and was there a more wicked moment in the world than that? It was through the horrors of the Holocaust that God birthed the modern state of Israel a few short years later. Friends, here's the reality we have no idea what God is doing right now behind the scenes. 
how the quarantine will have brought some families together that desperately needed to have that happen. How the sudden erosion of our income will have caused some to consider, is money really a good God if it can walk away in a day and my life's work can dissipate in a moment? How our forced absences, even from our churches, might help saints appreciate that we should not forsake the gathering together of the saints because we began to think that it's always there. We'll just come when we don't have something better on a sunny Sunday. How even in the the horrific display of callous indifference by those who are entrusted to protect us, how even in that, God might bring about some needed changes in our interactions with those in law enforcement in the future. So as we turn on our TV and we see scenes of uh, of crowds looting and our cities burning, I want you to be reminded of something. It's in the Gospels. It's pertaining to a man who followed Jesus. His name was Simon the Zealot. Now, I don't know what you know about the first century world, but the zealots were the insurrectionists of Hebrew society. They were the ones who sought the violent overthrow of the Roman occupiers. And they would use chaos and carnage and the asakari, the dagger men would even use murder to try to accomplish the violent overthrow of the Roman overlord. And yet Simon the zealot was turned into an apostle who ultimately gave his life for sharing the gospel. I'm reminded in the book of Acts of the circumstances concerning the conversion of Saul of Tarsus, who before becoming a Christian, ruthlessly rounded up Christians for public execution. And yet God changed the heart of Saul of Tarsus so that he was transformed into the apostle Paul of our New Testament. And so, friends, I want to encourage you, instead of wondering, God, why are you not doing something? I want you to remember the next chapter. Chapter 2 of Habakkuk and verse 4. But the righteous shall live by his faith. And I want you to remember, God is doing something. Right now, this side of history All we can see is the test. But there's another side of history, and time will show us the testimony. But there often has to be a test before we get to the testimony. And saints love the testimony, and we loathe the test. But that's not the way God works his best in us. Instead of complaining and dismaying, I want to encourage you to do what Habakkuk did and start praying Start praying for God to change hopelessness into hope by other people meeting the God of hope, like Simon the Zealot did. I want us to pray for those whose hearts are full of fury to be transformed into hearts of mercy because they have personally experienced the Lord Jesus' mercy in their life. Let's pray for God to heal our country through the grace of the gospel. Let's pray that God might be merciful and somehow bring about revival in all this upheaval. And so it's in those ends today that I would like us to pray. 
And I would like, if we were here together, for you to turn to your neighbor and pray to your Savior, but I don't know where you are today. So I'm going to give you a moment in the little groups that you're in to pray with your neighbor in your home. And if it's just you in the car listening to this later, then pray to your Savior for a few moments for Him to do something wonderful in what we see is right now kind of awful. And that there would be zealots who become zealous for Jesus. And there would be people bent on destruction and insurrection who would become agents of gospel proclamation. And that great good would come where great evil is currently residing. In just a moment, I will close us in prayer. You pray for a moment where you are. Lord Jesus, we often call moments like these awkward silence, but I pray that you'd impress on our hearts this week when we are dismayed, when we see things that frighten us, sicken us, discourage us, that we would not lose hope, but we would pray to the God of hope, that we would remember that you are good and you are gracious and you are at work in the world that we would remember that it takes tests and trials to produce testimonies and character, that often you have to make us sufficiently uncomfortable in our current context so that we consider that we need a better context. Lord, you are the God of nature, and as the God of nature, you routinely take refuse and make roses. You pile on manure to bring about flowers in our gardens. And the God of nature is the God of Scripture. Many times, many hard things, wrong things, sinful things come into our life, some at our own hand and some through the hand of others. Uh, We ask that you would be gracious in this and not allow this to be wasted but invested, that it would Make us closer to you and the net result being that we are more like you, that we would shine like stars in a wicked and depraved generation, that we would be people whose feet are fitted with the gospel of peace, that we would be a good news people in a bad news world, that we would have a holy boldness for Jesus when others have a boldness towards many, many, many things. May we have a boldness towards the one truly good thing, and that is your Son, who came on a mission, who died for those who didn't deserve it, so that we could be adopted into the family of God eternally 
and then remade entirely, that there would be salt and light in a world of darkness and decay. And salt stops decay, but when you put salt on a wound, it at first causes some to recoil. Help us not to lose our saltiness. And light has come into the world, but John tells us that men love darkness. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, that you would allow us to shine for you in a way where the only offense is the gospel. And people would not find offense, but they would find Christ. And in finding Christ, they would be changed. And we would be agents of change because we are your ambassadors. And we don't primarily involve ourselves in the civilian affairs of this world, but we are to be resolute in being ambassadors inviting people to join the King. For He is building a very different world and He invites us to be part of it now. And so I, I pray if you're here today and, and you're kind of hopeless and the world seems kind of reckless and you see the turbulence and you want peace, I pray that you would see that there is the Prince of Peace and He's the one who can bring peace. And that peace with God was made through His shed blood that God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. And if you're here today and you want that life, if you want that peace, if you want to be able to say, I can be anxious about nothing, but in everything by prayer and petition, I can present my request to God, and my circumstances may not change, but I have a peace that comes from the God of peace that enables me to be peaceable and even joyous in the midst of tribulation. If that's something you want today, then you need to understand that that comes only through Jesus Christ. The Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we can't make ourselves right with God. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And so if you're here today and you believe that Jesus is God and that you are a sinner... And you know that the wages of sin is death. Death physically, but then eternally, separation from a holy God. But I invite you right now to understand the truth of Romans that says the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is in Jesus Christ. And reach out and take that free gift. The Bible says that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. It says the name of the Lord that you're going to give up living your life and running your life and being the God of your life like the Assyrians who in their victories became so deluded that they thought they were like God and they were the masters of their universe and the captain of their fate. In reality, we have a maker and we have a judge. Praise God, we also have a savior and they're one and the same. If you would like to make peace with God today, your prayer can be expressed like this. It's the desire of your heart, not a magical incantation, but you could pray right now, right with me. Father, forgive me, for I am a sinner, and I need a Savior. And I know there's no other name under heaven by which I may be saved other than Jesus Christ. And so I ask today that I would make him Lord of my life, that he would be my God and I would be his servant, his friend, and indeed a child of the Heavenly Father. 
I pray that you would take my heart of stone and give me a heart of flesh. Let the scales fall from my eyes. Let the the world's impacting in my ears fall off that I would hear your word. And indeed, I would hear a song from the Scriptures that brings me joy even when the world does not. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.